Welcome to Murderous Roots. Last week, we covered part one of Jim Jones' Jonestown, where we discuss what happened at Jonestown and what led up to it. Then we started exploring Jim's family tree. This week, we'll finish our discussion, including a few surprises. Now, let's get started. off last week, we had finished discussing Lester Clyde Jones, the brother of James Thurman Jones, and uncle of Jim Jones, as well as Lester's daughter, Peggy Jones Berger, and her ex-husband's connection to the Black Dahlia. Now, let's continue where we left off. Well, let's get back, and we're going to go back to James Thurman's youngest brother now, Ernest Jones, who was born in 1907. So this is Jim's uncle. He volunteered for the U.S. Army days after Pearl Harbor began in December 1940. Was it patriotism or maybe something else? Now, it probably was a little bit of patriotism, but I also believe it's because Ernest had legal trouble. Lots and lots of legal trouble. Really? And, mm -hmm. In 1930, I found him on the census as a prisoner at the Indiana Reformatory in Falls Creek, Indiana. It's now known as the Pendleton Correctional Facility. In fact, John Dillinger, the famous robber and mm -hmm. criminal, spent time there himself. It's possible they were there even at the same time because John Dillinger was there from, I believe, 1928 through 1929. Wow. It just depends on when Ernest went into prison. Dillinger was transferred to another facility in 1929. Do we know um, what he was in prison for? No. I was unable to narrow that down because there was lots of different stories, but my guess is it revolved around alcohol because all his legal troubles seemed to revolve around that, whether it be intoxication or illegal possession during prohibition. So my best guess is it was possession or maybe he was even selling alcohol and it was, it was a time of prohibition. And sometimes and people got thrown in prison quicker than usual. And this is still in Indiana, isn't it? Yes. Okay, yeah, because grain alcohol was huge during Prohibition. Mm -hmm. um, and Al Capone did a lot of uh, trade within Indiana for alcohol. Yeah. Um, in 1933, Ernest is out of prison and he gets married. But I know they divorced before 1940. By 1940, he's considered a vagrant by the courts and he's still being arrested over and over again. Wow. By 1943, he was out of jail again and still struggling with alcohol. And then 1944, it seems alcohol proved too much. In the palladium item on the 15th of March, 1944, body of Lynn Mann found in river. Ernest Harold Jones, 36 years old, was found dead in the Whitewater River near the Doran, Doran Bridge Tuesday afternoon. Apparently the victim of drowning. Police say the body was found by Andrew Reese and Robert Day, teenagers who were in the river bottom hunting for wood as material for bows and arrows. Jones had been dead for some time, police said. Mm. The body indicated that Jones had fallen from the top of the bank and drowned probably after having been knocked unconscious by the fall. Wow. Yeah. And so how old would Jim Jones have been at that point? 
1944. He would have been 13. Yeah. Wow. And I'm sure that they knew each other because they you would think because they lived in the same area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I get the impression wow. that his brothers had bailed him out before. Not always the same one, but mm -hmm. uh, one quick thing I did want to mention that occurred to me as we were talking. One thing that Jim Jones had brought up was was his father, mm -hmm. was that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, he used to say that. And I noticed, oh, and I'm, I'm probably not going to find it, um, a mention somewhere that, that the county they were living in at the time, Wayne County, was a, the headquarters for the Indiana chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Like that was the, the biggest grouping of Ku Klux Klan members were in Whitewater. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, Whitewater? That's funny. Yeah, it is kind of funny. Like, did they do that on purpose? I don't know. So now let's talk about James Thurman's wife, not James Thurman's wife. Now let's talk about John Henry's wife, Mary Catherine Shank. So Jim's grandmother. She was born on the 6th of January, 1863 in Ohio. Now her tree was very confusing at first. And I looked at other trees and found people were making them, made the same mistake I initially did. And they were tying her to a wealthy family in Ohio. But if you are somebody who do, does these trees or this is your family and you have that, you are wrong. That is not her family. Oh, wow. Um, and a quick tip, do not copy other people's trees. Do your own research, people. Because when I was doing the tree and I saw that connection, I'm like, okay, I'll go with this for now. And I checked other people's trees and they were going that way. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm on the right track. But certain things were going off as this doesn't fit. Why do I look at other people's trees? Usually it's for reference, references and documentation. If I see the only source they get is from another person's tree, I don't trust it automatically. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to see that they have other documentation. I don't copy their tree, but I will follow a trail and the sources to verify. So it's really important to do your own research. And the mistake that was made was an easy one to do because her death certificate lists her parents as Jacob Shank and Sarah Wrights. In 1870 in Ohio, there was a family of Jacob and Sarah Shank living there with a daughter named Mary. Mm. So I can see why people would go with that way. And that's why I started to as well. But here's some of the problems I found. The family in Ohio was wealthy, and they were still living there in 1880. But Mary was living in Indiana in 1880 by herself. Why would she leave Ohio and a wealthy family to live in Abington, Wayne County, Indiana, working as domestic servants? Mm, yeah, that would be a clue. That brought up some questions for me. Also, in 1870, Mary was listed as Mary A, not Mary C, and she was age two, not seven. Now... Mm. Genealogists, for the most part, know census takers will make mistakes like this all the time on the age. I have a couple of people on this tree where in one census, they're 36, and the next census, they're 43. So it happens, and that's why you have to verify and keep digging to make sure. But here was the clincher. I found a tombstone of the children who died to Jacob and Sarah in Ohio. They had lost a few children, and they had a list of each child on the tombstone along with how old they were by years and months and days. So I could, and plus their death date. So I could figure out how old they were. One name that was listed was Alfreda M who died 1876 at the age of eight years, 10 months. Now 
remember I said in 1870, I found them with a Mary A, mm. who was two years old. Well, this fit with the Mary A because she was two at the time and would have been two as well there. So I'm like, no, this can't be it. Let me go back and start over. To figure this out, I went and looked in Abington specifically to see if other Shank family members lived there in 1880, not just Mary C, who was working as a domestic servant. And that's when I found William Shank, who was 14, working on a family farm. So I have Mary working as a domestic servant, William working on a family farm. Now I'm beginning to believe that her parents had died because a sibling's also working, they're not in their home. Mm -hmm. That would probably mean that the family moved to Abington before the parents died. So I looked closer at the 1870 census, this time looking for William, not Mary, and found Jacob and Sarah in Abington. Oh, so nice. This gives you an idea of how you do the research. Mm -hmm. So Mary, it turns out Mary Catherine was the second oldest of five children. She had one older sister and three younger brothers. Her parents were Jacob Shank and Sarah Wright, both born in Ohio in 1840. They married in 1862 in Shelby County, Ohio. Between their third and fourth child, the family moved from Ohio and settled in Abington around 1866. Then sometime in the 1870s, Sarah died. Jacob married again, this time to a Mary Helmsing, who was 11 years his junior, around 1879. So in the 1880 census are Jacob and Mary, and the only one of his five children living with them is his youngest, James. All the other children were living and working with other family members and not with their father. The oldest being Emma, 18, Mary, 17, William, 14, and Charles, 12. Jacob died in 1929 in Indiana. Now, we'll go to Jacob's parents, which were William Shank and, William, and Rachel Stauffer. So William Shank would be Jim's second great-grandfather. He was born around 1814 in Frederick, Maryland. By 1836, he's living in Montgomery County, Ohio which is like Dayton, Ohio area. He married Rachel Stauffer, who was the same age from Pennsylvania in June, 1836. And they had at least three children, Jacob, Henry, and Elizabeth. Family moved from Montgomery County North to Shelby County by 1850. Then the Civil War begins. And William enlisted. He enlisted in, the, in Company K of the 14th Missouri Infantry. Now I found myself going, what? He's in the Missouri Infantry, and he's in Ohio. Do I have my facts wrong? <laughs> Did mm -hmm. I screw something up? Nope. He enlisted in April 1862 in Columbus, Ohio. And let me tell you about the unit he joined in, which was originally called the Burgess Western Sharpshooters. Well, I love the name. Mm -hmm. The regiment he joined was Special Forces that were armed with long rifles that were highly accurate. The men who joined came from Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, and Missouri. It was originally formed by a St. Louis eye doctor by the name of John Burge. Burge had been part of a group of Americans who tried to save Canada from the British Empire by trying to invade it back in 1838. Now, I do not recall learning this one in history, but if you are curious, go Google Patriot War 1838, and there's a ton of information for you. I, I'm going to totally do that. <laughs> And I, I might provide the Wikipedia link for people. But to become a member of Burgess unit, you had the, the recruit needed to be able to hit a target 10 times at 200 yards, with misses being within three inches. Wow. Right? Burge formed the group in December 1861. Then in February 1862, days after Brigadier General Ulysses Grant, ordered the unit to join his offensive. 
Burge was arrested for illegally raising a regiment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So basically, Grant takes his unit, goes, okay, we need you. Come with us. And Burge, you're arrested for having even started this group in the first place. I find that fascinating that they apparently regulated militia more back then than they do now. Yes. Like, I might start my own militia. Yeah. Well, William joined this unit, this special group, days before the Battle of Shiloh in southern Tennessee in April 1862. So it's unlikely that he was there for that. Okay. But he was probably present for the Second Battle of Corinth in Mississippi in October 1862. Then at the end of that month in October, he claimed to have mustered out due to health issues, something with his lungs, and returned to Ohio. Now, this unit changed names over time. And at one point was called, I can't remember the name, but it was something Illinois Infantry okay. <laughs> later. And then the Illinois records, they have him as being a deserter. Really? Mm -hmm. Yes. But according to other later records with the military, they have him as mustering out. So maybe he got it resolved. Mm -hmm. but, they, but he was also described as being only five foot five. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So he returns to Ohio. And then by 1870, he and his family moved to Abington, Indiana. In April 1884, his wife dies. That's Rachel. And then in November 1884, William returns to Ohio and Dayton to live in the veterans' home. And that's the record where it shows that he mustered out. Okay. And he remained there until March 1886. Now, which veterans' home was he in? In Indiana or in Ohio? Ohio, at the Dayton, Ohio. Okay. He ended up returning to the Veterans Home again in June 1890 and stayed until April 1893 with the ability to come and return any time without any reference to saying so. He died sometime between then and 1900. I'm not sure when. I was unable to find his death record. I do not know his, the name of his parents or his wife's parents. I have a few possibles for William um, where there were people in Indiana who had come from and actually more, Shelby and Montgomery, Ohio, that had come from Maryland. So I, I suspect they're related, but I can't find anything to confirm it. Okay. We're going to come back down, and we're going to go to John Jones's, John Henry Jones's father was Warren Jones, and his mother was Sarah Stelfer. So these are the great-grandparents of Jim Jones. Warren and Sarah married on the 28th of October, 1844, in Wayne County. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sarah first. She was born in August 1824 in Pennsylvania. She was one of eight children, five girls, three boys. Her parents were Jacob Stauffer and Hannah Hine, who were married around 1820 in Berks County, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Berks County um, is a bit to the east of Reading. Okay. It might include some of the suburbs of that. Sometime after 1838 and before 1850, they moved to Indiana. Now, Hannah's father was Johannes Hine. I suspect he was an immigrant from Germany based on his name. Hannah was born in 1797, and then she was baptized in May at the Schwarzwald Reformed Church in Berks County. This is a Lutheran church that was established in 1737 and is still active to this day. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, she died at age 92 in May 1889 in Indiana. Her husband, Jacob Stauffer, was born May 1798. And he was the son of Jacob Sr. and Mary Byler, a Mennonite family. Hmm. Mary Byler's father, this is as far as I get, is um, John, who died in 1821 in Berks County. And that's all I know about that. 
I think we should start keeping track of how many different denominations because we've got Quakers, we have Mennonites, we have Lutherans. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard of any Catholics yet, so. There's no Catholics. I hate to tell you. I know. Hmm. Okay, so now let's go. So we did Sarah Stalford. Let's talk about Warren Jones, um, Jim's great grandfather. He was one of at least 11 children, maybe more. Oh my goodness. Now let me tell you, and it's more about the process, but how I gather names and explain a couple things just so people know. And this is why I think filling out your census is so important. So if you haven't done so, I don't know if you still can do it. The first six censuses only had the head of household listed, and then it would count how many of certain age groupings. Okay. There was so many under five, so many between five and 10, so on and so forth. And they would also do it, separate it if they were slaves. And in fact, 1850 and 1860 had special slave counts. Mm. And I won't call them special, but they were slave counts because there's so many things wrong with them. But we'll tackle that another time. Mm -hmm. um, starting in 1850, though, so the first six censuses were 1793 through 1840. During 1850, they took all the names of the household, though, and listed them with their age, gender, and where they were born, what state. If all the children lived at home, easy peasy. I got all the whole family right there. If not, you can sometimes look at the neighbors. Sometimes parents or children live next to each other. At least you would have a hint to go look and see if connected. More times than not, I'm like, yep, that's gotta be the child. That's gotta be the dad. And then I'll verify. Another place to get names are wills, but that doesn't always work because sometimes the children are not included because they've either all passed away themselves or I've seen a couple of instances where the person, the um, husband usually has left everything to the wife, which mm -hmm. that doesn't happen very often, but sometimes that's it and it makes mm -hmm. it simple. But well, and just to put in a plug for proper estate planning, mm -hmm. a lot of times people will make a will and they have like their first two children and then they never think to update it. And so they unintentionally disinherited like all yeah. the rest of the kids because they never bothered to redo their will. Which reminds me, I need to update ours, but we do have a little thing and any other children that were to come. So, <laughs> um, anyhow, and the other issue was sometimes people went into probate. A lot of times you run into people who did not have a will and that mm -hmm. you're not going to get a list of names there. Sometimes you can find names from vital records. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, if you, if you actually have a non-testate uh, succession issue, mm -hmm. there is something that they have to do called an, a determination of heirship. And if you can find that file in a probate case, that's going to say everybody and how they're related. Yeah, I mean, I've gone through probate records looking and sometimes I'll find something, but more often than not with the old records, mm -hmm. they don't always have that. But that's a great idea. Just a little heads up from a probate yeah. attorney. <laughs> um, newspaper articles will sometimes have mentioned and tombstones, especially at specific cemeteries you can get. So it's very possible to miss names. That's why a lot of times I'm like, he had at least five siblings, because I'm not sure that that was it. In some cases, families might also have records passed down in some form, and their trees can help you by leading you to a paper trail, or they have their own documentation, so you can contact the person they have, the family Bible, for example. Mm. Now, I say this because Warren's parents married in 1809, but didn't have their first child until 1812 which nowadays is pretty normal. But back then, they usually had their first child within the first year or two. Mm -hmm. 
Then there are no other children I can find until a child was born in 1824. So that's a 12-year gap. And so that's why I say there's likely more than 11 children. Mm-hmm. Now, you're going to enjoy this because I'm, I'm winging this next part here. So the 1850 census had real estate values listed on it. So they would ask the people or they, I, I don't know how they came up with the numbers, what their real estate was valued at. And Warren's value in 1850 was $500. Then 1860, they wanted their real estate value and personal estate value. Well, Warren was doing better. By 1860, his real estate was valued at $2,000 and personal estate at 400. Nice. In 1870, his real estate was valued at $8,000 and his personal estate was at $2,000. So they were comfortable. They were very comfortable. And it's interesting because you'll see people going, well, let's look at the value of the dollar then. But I don't think that's the best way to do it Mm -hmm. because I've just never been able to do it. So I got it in my mind to do a little math because I'm weird that way and I like math. So I decided to convert by looking at the value of an acre of land in Wayne County, Indiana in 1870. And I found a source that gave me an idea of the value of the land in every county in the United States in 1870. These were averages. Assuming the real estate value was all the land they had, which I doubt it could have included the house and other items. But I just went on the assumption that that was all he had. So I divided the number by the real estate value that was going for at the time per acre. And that would mean he probably owned around 133 acres, possibly. Based on the average price per acre today, that land would be worth over $1.1 million. Wow. If I'm correct. And I could Mm -hmm. be very wrong, but it was still a lot. Yeah. Wow. So Warren ended up dying in 1902 of progressive atrophy of the muscles. That's a first. I've never seen that one before. So there's a doctor out there who can explain that. That'd be awesome. Sarah died six years later, almost to the same day that Warren died on September 1st, 1908. Wow. Warren's parents, so Jim's second great-grandparents, were Edmund Jones and Ruth Jarrett. They were both from Kanawha County, Virginia, which is now known as West Virginia. Huh. Mm -hmm. Ruth was born in July 1788, but not much else is known. Edmund was born April 1789, and they got married in 1809 in Kanawha. If I'm mispronouncing, please let me know. Um, They settled in Indiana between 1812 and 1824, the births of the children that I knew about. (laughs) And I looked at their their real estate values. And in 1850, Edmund's real estate was valued at $3,500. So he was doing quite well for himself. And using the same math, he would have owned around 150 acres, and it would have been worth up to $1.3 million today. Wow. So they were definitely comfortable. They died within two years of each other in the 1870s. I'm going quickly through this because the good stuff is coming. More you mean there's I more? I know, but wait, there's more. Now we get to John Junior, John Jones Sr., Jim Jones's third great-grandfather, who was born the 20, January 28, 1755 in Culpeper, Virginia. In November 1775, he married 15-year-old Frances Morris. Together, they had at least five sons and one daughter. But before they started having children, and their family really got started, the Revolutionary War was going on. So hold that thought for a minute. Let's talk about Frances Morris's wife. Her parents were William Morris Sr. and Elizabeth Stipp. So these are Jim's fourth great-grandparents. 
William was born in 1722, Elizabeth seven years later in 1729. They married on Elizabeth's 17th birthday in 1746. Together they had at least 10 children. Only two of those children were daughters. Oh my. So eight boys. That poor woman. <laughs> mm -hmm. Their oldest child was William Jr., who was born in 1746, and their third oldest was Leonard was born in 1748. And I say this for a reason, we'll get back to it. Now let's go to the revolution. Okay. Really quick, where are they living at this point? I they, are, they are in Kanawha County, Virginia. Okay. John Jones Sr. enlists in the Revolutionary War as a soldier under Captain Arbuckle. And he even served with his brothers-in-law, William and Leonard Morris. And they were in a special capacity. And I found a Sons of the American Revolution application form going over everything about these people and it is amazing okay so i have to take off my glasses because i'm going to be reading really small print <laughs> okay and this was um and this application for this person they used an extract from a book called the history of kanawha valley and it says that William Morris was the father of 10 children, including Francis, who married John Jones. And John Jones, like I said before, came from Culpeper County, and he has been in the Revolutionary Army and has served to the end of the war. He first came through the Kanawha Valley with Colonel Andrew Lewis on his way to the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774. So he married her while he was already fighting with the revolutionists. Wow. He came back to Kanawha after the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown in 1881. Wait, 1881? Oh, that's what they put, but I think she meant 1781. <laughs> this is why I get her reading directly instead of going, wait. So good catch. <laughs> now, I'm going to go back because it does say that in 1773, so he would have been 17 years old, that John took out patents for land of 359 acres on the Kanawha River. 400 acres in the same year, 400 acres in 1797, and is said to have controlled the situation from Point Creek to the Narrows. And he controlled all the lands of, oh, Paint Creek, not Point Creek, in the Kanawha Valley. This is probably where some of that wealth came from, mm -hmm. going down to the sons and the grandsons that was all passed down. It doesn't sound like he was struggling much. <laughs> um, John Jones was with Captain John Field, when he was wounded at the Battle of Point Creek Pleasant, Point Pleasant, and the Daughters of the American Revolution have organized a chapter and called it the William Morris Chapter of the DAR. I believe they are still called the William Morris oh. Chapter of the DAR. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and the chapter is located at Pratt, West Virginia, at the old home of John Jones. They have a bronze slab to the memory of John Jones, and I believe there's also a slab for William Morris. And the William Morris we're talking about on this is junior, I believe, not senior. Wow. Francis's brother. Another application included the following, that John was an Indian scout with William and Leonard from 1778 to 1789. Now, just as a quick reminder, the Indians were fighting on the side of the British during the Revolutionary War, mm. most of them, I believe. Um, and they covered over 60 to 70 miles along that area of the Great Kanawha River. And the, here's a direct quote. An attack by the Indians, and before I read this, this is a direct quote by somebody, I believe they wrote it in their 20s or 30s when they were applying for the membership. And it's offensive to a degree 
and you'll understand why here in a minute. And I do not in any way endorse the offensiveness of the statement, but I'm just reading it yeah. as described. Okay, an attack by the Indians was repulsed and the savages then turned to Donnelly's Fort and Greenbrier. Two bold and daring soldiers dressed themselves in Indian costume and made their way thither and apprised the settlers of their danger and time to save them from extermination. Mm. The savages comment, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Did not like that, so. Well, and think about it because, I mean, the Europeans were just coming in going, it's our land now, and then being yeah. upset that the Indians were fighting back. It's like, what? Well, and then they take, you know, they're different. They don't live the same as everybody else. They don't have the same type of houses and all this, so they must be mm -hmm. savage. But yeah. Ignorance is yes. so much. But I hope we've learned better. No, and, no, we haven't. <laughs> well, some of us have. Unfortunately, not enough, but some of us have. Okay, so let's go back to the Morris family. We're going to go back to William Morris, who was the father-in-law of John Jones and the fourth great-grandfather for Jim Jones. He was the son of Thomas Morris and Sarah Whale. Thomas's father was Anthony Morris, who was born in 1681 in London, and B.B. Guest, who was born in 1685 in Philadelphia. They married in 1704 in Philly. Now let's do a quick review because I've just thrown out a bunch of names in a short amount of time. We have Jim Jones, his father is James Thurman, grandfather John Henry, great-grandfather Warren, second great-grandfather Edmund, third great-grandmother, wife of Warren Jones, Francis Morris, fourth great-grandfather William Morris Sr., fifth great-grandfather Thomas, sixth great-grandfather Anthony Morris. Now Thomas, um, the fifth great-grandfather, had at least one brother, Samuel Morris, who was the sheriff of Philadelphia from 1752 1755 and from 1758 to 1760. Wow. And there's going back a little bit, there is actually some historical markers in the area. And this one says first settlers. Walter Kelly settled here about 1773, but was killed by Indians. William Morris came here in 1774 and made first permanent settlement in this valley. He built a fort, had a boatyard, and started a church and school. This is about Kanawha, West Virginia. Wow. By the way, the next one, our next topic, which we'll bring up soon, Kanawha Valley, come, that area comes up. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So here's one little fun fact I have to add, even though this is already pretty long. Jim's half uncle, we're going back to the beginning, was Clement. And I, he had two sons, one of which was Edwin Harold Jones. So his half first cousin. Edwin was born 1893 in Indiana and died in 1971 in Skagit, Washington. I bring him up because he was a meteorologist for the Weather Bureau, what is now called the National Weather Service. As you know, Zelda, and our listeners may not, is that my husband is a lead meteorologist for the National Weather Service. And my husband, being ever the helpful man that he is, found Edwin's obituary that was listed in the American Meteorological Society newsletter. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Yeah, um, Edwin H. Jones, member emeritus of the AMS and retired meteorologist of the U.S. Weather Bureau, Bureau died in eight, 1971. Um, talks where he went to high school. I don't think we care about that, but from 
13 to 1917, he worked for the Weather Bureau in Boise, Idaho, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Wagon Wheel Gap, Colorado. He worked for the Weather Bureau, now the Weather Service, as assistant officer in charge, fruit frost forecaster, and climatology section of such various places as Portland, Oregon, Reno, Nevada, Ithaca, New York, Redding, California, Yakima, Washington, Burbank, California, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Anchorage and Fairbanks, Alaska, as well as Boise, Idaho. In 1951, he retired from the Weather Bureau. And wow, yeah, it was so funny because I was finding him in different newspapers and doing stuff like he first went up to um, Alaska and he had an assignment and he had to leave early because he got sick. Mm. And so they they brought him back down to California for a time and he ended up back up there at some point. But anyhow, I could not help myself. I had to do that one. That's awesome. And that was a lot. I mean, that was the family of Jim Jones. And we didn't even cover everything, by the way. There's so much I, more. But I had Oh to my gosh. And well, I mean, when those families have 11 and 20,000 children each, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I didn't even go through every one of the children. I was still working. And I'm like, I'm looking at what I have. And I'm like, oh, I already have a ton. I need to just stop because there's no way we're going to be able to cover it all. Oh, yeah. And well, as it is, we've been on, gosh, this is almost two hours. <laughs> Well, let, let's add a little more time on because I did look up the surviving children of Jim Jones oh, okay. just for a quick overview because awesome. it turns out I had said he had like six children. It turns out he actually had nine children. If you include oh, everybody I missed that he adopted. Okay. Yeah. And I, well, I mean, that was just all like, it's all very confusing when you start talking about his children because yeah. some of the children, were they his children? Were they not his children? Things got a little messy. So the surviving sons were Stephen, Jim Jr., and Tim. And the reason that they didn't take part in the mass suicide was that they were playing a basketball game against the Guyanese national team in Georgetown. And so they actually ran to the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown to try and get help. But the soldiers guarding the embassy refused to let them in because the, the shootings had just happened at the airstrip. So um, then they went to the temple's headquarters in Georgetown and found the bodies of the woman and her three children who had committed suicide. Now, at that point, the, Gu the Guyanese soldiers arrested the three of them and kept them under surveillance and lots of questioning because they thought they might know some, they might have been yeah. part of all this mass suicide. Um, but it looks like all three are still alive and have children. Um, now, Jim Jones lost his wife, his first wife, and his unborn child at Jonestown. Um, but um, he has since remarried and has three sons, one of whom is a high school basketball star. Oh, wow. So then um, three of his children died at Jonestown, three, four, five of his children Mm -hmm. Looks like died at Jonestown. Lou, Agnes, and um, Lou and Agnes. Suzanne wasn't there. Then John Stone and Chemo, who were Jim John was Chemo. Right. Um, and they both died at Jonestown. So, I mean, it's just kind of like <laughs> this whole. So he lost about half of his children at Jonestown. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, not lost. He killed them. 
Um, and then the ones that survived survived because they weren't there. Thank goodness. Yeah. And I, I saw an interview two years ago with Stephen Jones mm -hmm. on ABC. And I'll post a link to that in case anybody's curious about it. Um, because it's, it's actually fascinating. I just, I can't even imagine. Because was he the one who um, like went back like 25 years later to the, to Jonestown? He and they went been. through the buildings and, you know, because the jungle's taken it over because like literally nobody wants anything to do with it, which you can see why. And they actually found like the tub or the big, um, what do you call it? Barrel. Mm -hmm. They actually found the big barrel that they made the poisonous drink in. And I mean, it just, so, so much of it seems to have just been left untouched once the bodies were removed. And most of those bodies were buried in a mass grave in Guyana. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure, but it wouldn't surprise me because I believe he's written several essays about mm -hmm. his father. And part of the reason they were talking to him in the interview was because it had been 40 years since Jonestown. So it was one of those anniversary mm -hmm. interview type things. Yeah. And as far as I know, he's the only one who's really been open to a lot of interviews. Well, I can't even imagine. I mean, there the few people who survived it, mm -hmm. like... One woman was an older woman who was hard of hearing and she didn't hear the announcement. Everybody was supposed to come and drink Kool-Aid. So she, and then when she did, I guess she crawled under her bed and then just waited until it was all over and came out. I mean, but I mean, her sister died there. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, uh, it's just astonishing. It's astonishing what this man did and that people followed him literally to their deaths. Yeah, and what's interesting is looking at his tree, so many, like you said, gave back in some fashion. I mean, uh -huh. it seems like he had some decent people in his tree. Yeah, his his father could very well have been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I have no reason for doubting that. Uh -huh. So that doesn't necessarily make him a good, he wouldn't necessarily be a good person because of that, you know. I, right. However, there were other people in the family that did a lot for the communities and other places and worked hard. Uh -huh. and. What could have been? And well, and I kind of wonder if, since he had so many extended family members around him when he was growing up, mm -hmm. if that isn't also what kind of fueled his intense desire for um, for equality under the law, for really? no matter what race you were, um, indirect opposition to how his father felt, apparently. Um, and yet there was something inside him that you know, from early days, they could see there was something very odd and wrong about things. And it's like, what even, like, what happened, you know? Well, and my guess is he had some natural charisma. Mm -hmm. He was an only child, and there's nothing wrong with being an only child. Please don't take that. But some <laughs> parents will take that only child and raise them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. And I get that impression that maybe mom did that, that he was the end all be all. Mm -hmm. And that's what he expected. And that's what he wanted. And then when he got into preaching, he was getting that feedback and he loved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm sure there was a good part in there where he was wanting to help others. Mm -hmm. But it's also just as likely that about his sense of self as mm -hmm. being, I'm a savior. Because one thing mm -hmm. he did tell people and is that, he would bring people back from the dead. He had that power. You don't need the Bible. You mm -hmm. have me. Yeah. 
And yeah. Yeah, his narcissism and this sort of like Messiah thing going on mm -hmm. was from early days. Yeah. I mean, right when he was first starting his own church. And it's, again, it's just fascinating to me that from the get-go, he saw establishing his own church as a way to become rich. Yeah. And that it wasn't this he wasn't driven by this desire to bring people together as much. He was driven by the desire to make money. And he saw that, wow, all of these evangelists running around Indiana seem to have some pretty good change in their pocket. And I mean, that's why he decided to do it. There was some good in it, but I mean, anybody was welcome to join his church. It didn't matter what color you were. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, in this time of black lives matter, he really did believe in their value mm -hmm. of black lives. And he thought that was, important but at the same time he killed some of those black lives by giving them poison yeah. when they get to guiana so mm -hmm. he's like at both ends of the spectrum but at least yeah. i guess he was a he killed he didn't care who he killed it didn't matter the color of your skin i'll kill you anyway i guess mm -hmm. oh gosh <laughs> so sick well it, it just is it's just astonishing to me because when we look at people who also led this sort of dual existence, mm -hmm. you had like H.H. Holmes, for example. He kept things very separate and compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. um, the, and everybody we've seen up to this point that we've talked about kept things very compartmentalized. And then we have this guy who's just throwing it all together, oh, you yeah. know, and, um, you know, didn't try to keep his people, I mean, until they got to Guyana, but they were at, you know, until you know, when they're in California, they didn't, you know, when they got to California, they weren't encouraged to go make friends outside of the church, but they could still go and have jobs and, you know, do that sort of thing. It wasn't, he didn't get really bad about it till toward the end. And then of course, moved all these people to Guyana, but it just fascinates me that all of these people bought into this mass delusion and were happy on some level to sign over their money, you know, their autonomy and all this to, to this man who admittedly he was very charismatic. Um, everything about him says he was a very, you know, uh, striking and compelling presence, especially when he was preaching. Um, he had a lot of zeal and fire and passion that people really connected to. There was a sort of weird ennui happening after World War II when we're hearing about things like the Mad Men, you know, the, you know, the people who were taking Wall Street by storm. Right. But there was a significant part of the country that was, they were still trying to get their feet after World War II. And this, you know, for people who were uncertain about what are we supposed to be doing with our lives, he was happy to step in and tell them. Well, and there was a lot more religious fervor, I believe, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. There was that whole anti-communism fervor, and he was a communist, but right. he was using all that to rile up his church, mm -hmm. that fervor, that need for God. Mm -hmm. I, it's just, it's weird. And, you know, I almost think of cults in some way, at least cult leaders in particular, as being like the abusive husband or boyfriend in a relationship. They mm -hmm. gaslight, they oh, tell yes. you thing over and over it's part of that abusive behavior mm -hmm. and they isolate you from your loved ones mm -hmm. because they don't want you hearing anything different. Right. And then he took the isolation to an extreme 
mm-hmm. by going to Guyana. Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah. wild. Well, and then, I mean, he used sex as a weapon as well. Mm-hmm. So he would have sex with people and then basically kind of hold it over them. It's one more secret he knew about them. And I mean, I just feel so much empathy for the families of the people who bought oh. into this cult. Because I remember how crazy I was going when my dad, with dealing with my dad. Right. And that was one person who managed to scam money out of a bit of money out of him and we have, we were able to step in before anything got you know irreversible right but i just think of what we went through trying to help him heal you know first of all trying to help him realize he was being brainwashed you know right. and that he was you know i just can't even imagine what they went through watching this happen to their children their brothers and their sisters and then they all end up dead in Guyana. Yeah. It's like, and this is the importance to fact checking in general. Mm-hmm. If somebody keeps telling you what you think is wrong, look it up yourself and make sure. Don't believe that just because they're telling you it. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. try to avoid that cult-like mentality because it's, it's not safe for you. It's not safe for the people around you. Mm-hmm. But you lose your sense of self when you get into that mindset. Mm-hmm. Don't join a cult. Yeah. <laughs> and it's okay to step away and go and be like, nope, no thank you. Mm-hmm. I was that one college student that always got approached by somebody to join the religious group on campus. Oh, yeah. And what's funny is I was agnostic. <laughs> I was so not interested. But they'd always come at me. I guess I had this look on my face of, oh, she needs somebody. She needs God. I don't know. I was always afraid that there was going to be a cult. Because weirdly at 19 I had that concern I did not want to get drawn into a cult I knew way too much I was a murderino way back then well I mean when we were teenagers I mean there was all kinds of stuff about how to avoid cults and I mean it was everywhere that's right I almost forgot about that yeah I mean and so I we probably should look up what cults were happening at that time that this was such a big deal but well I know we heard about Charles Manson and his cult and Mm -hmm. Jim Jones and his cult there must have been some other ones going on too and it was just Mm -hmm. such a big thing and it was probably an after-school special for all we remember Mm -hmm. but yeah so somebody would come up to me I go no oh come on you know you can make friends no (laughs) wow and here's me I tried to join several and they kept kicking me out (laughs) (laughs) I just I'm like I'm not gonna get stuck here then no no I struggled with obedience Well, hey, who are we going to talk about next time? Well, hold on a second. Thank you for listening to us as we covered the history of Jim Jones. On our next episode, which will be October 28th, do you want to know who that's going to be, Zelda? I'm so excited. This sounds like it's close to Halloween. It is. It's our Halloween episode, and we're going to get deep with another cult, Charles Manson. Oh, that's going to be fun. Yes, I'm, I'm, we're just covering him. We're not getting into the family, but that might be something we do in the future. But yeah, Manson himself is enough. And I've been already doing some of the research and oh man, that's a good one. Excellent. Yeah. Um, don't forget to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All our links are on our webpage, murdersroots.com. And thank you for joining us. That was fun. I'm so glad we did this. You have a great week now. You too. Bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.